audio platform upon which we will endeavor to centralize and showcase stories and information related to the lifting of historical and non-historical stones and the ongoing development and re-emergence of stone lifting culture. Welcome to episode 8 of the Stone and Strength podcast. Before we jump into our discussion with Keith Surrett, who is a fantastic guy, a very interesting person and a very accomplished stone lifter, we wanted to give a shout out to some of the new Stones and Strength pages that are popping up on Instagram or Stones and Strength pages that are starting to add more and more stones day by day. So one that was brand new today, first post up with the first stone made available for lifting is the ND Lifting Stones Instagram page. And it's a page that's dedicated to growing stone lifting culture in the Midwest of the USA. Uh, The Southern Appalachian Stones of Strength, which is at Southern underscore Appalachian underscore SOS, is adding more stones day by day. And the creator of that page, Jared, is actually someone that we met last year in Scotland uh, when when you, David, and and Jared were lifting the Dinny Stones. He's putting up a lot of really awesome stones. Um, And then just one other, you know, this stone was already established, but it was really cool seeing the first three successful lifts of the the Diablo Stone in, in the Netherlands, which... You know, the first three successful lifts out of 17 attempts this year, and that was a stone that was uh, created and made available for lifting by Slot Kiara. We also have the New England Stone Lifting, and they've actually got a couple stones up on our Modern Stones of Strength map. I really like what they're doing. Their Instagram page is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Alex Burleson has been adding some stones in Utah. So this is separate from the Utah Stones of Strength, which is started by Ryan Stewart, but Alex Burleson is also a stone lifter in Utah, and he's been getting some uh, stones up on our page. I also would like to give a shout out to Tales of Stone and Iron. It's a book that's come out, but it's not in English yet. It has been written by Mario Marquez, and it seems like a really, really cool book. It's basically about strength, well, all of strength history from the looks of it. Uh, He says it's a tribute to the history and art of strength and athleticism. So it features everything from the history of stone lifting, Highland Games, Basque Country, Modern Strongman, the Golden Age, uh, talks about how to train like Greek warriors and then how the Nordic world produced some of the greatest warriors in history. So really looking forward to when this comes out in English and uh, yeah, that's very exciting. It's all the, the kind of, you know, strength history stuff that us don't just nerd out about. So I'm really looking forward to, to getting my hands on that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, speaking of strength history, um, this is something that kind of comes up often in the, the stone lifting world, unfortunately too often. And, and, you know, we preach it and, you know, most people do, but this stuff just, it's, it's tough to see. There's, when people abuse historic stones, it's very frustrating. Uh, recently a video came to surface. It was, it was been out for quite a while and it was sent to me and about a gentleman using tacky on the Husafel stone. And I just, I, I can't understand it in my eyes as close to vandalism. You are putting something that is foreign to that, that beautiful piece of strength history and it is getting all over it and not only that but it's not a good lift and unfortunately this gentleman when uh called on it decided to just delete every comment and block people for daring to call him out so just a reminder to everyone if you don't know don't drop the stones and don't use tacky it doesn't make sense yeah especially something like tacky that is you know even if you're going to use it and make an attempt to clean it off the stone afterwards it's, it's very hard to get off of things and so as you'll hear in this episode you know Keith talks very, very fondly about his lift of the Husafel and how important that was for him and for his life. He says it's one of the most important things he's ever done. So imagine someone like him who has invested time and money in training, time and money in traveling to go lift the Husafel, and he has his experience ruined because he comes upon a Husafel that's covered in tacky. So please, please, please just treat historical stones with respect. 
you know, chalk at the most, right? Bring crash pads, do whatever you can to treat the stones with respect so that you're preserving them for future lifters. If you're not strong enough to lift a historical stone without the use of tacky, you're not strong enough. Now onto someone who was strong enough to lift the Husafel without tacky, and not just the Husafel, but 49 other historical stones around the world. Our guest for this episode is Keith Sered, and Keith, for many of you, might be a bit of an enigma because he doesn't post frequently on Instagram. He keeps a lot of his lifts and his accomplishments in the strength world private. But as you'll hear in this episode, he's really looking forward to opening up to the stonelifting community and getting further involved in posting videos and sharing his experience. And uh, he's just a very, very interesting person, a very, very strong, strong person. But as you'll hear, you know, he, he talks about how he he wasn't gifted with natural strength. It was something that he had to develop. And you'll in the episode, he, he details the very, very tactical and technical way where he would go about developing strength for specific events, for specific lists, specific stones, and most importantly, for the Husafel. You know, a, a very, very nice, nice man, someone that David knows quite well, who has helped coach David in the past. And uh, yeah, it was great to sit down and talk to him. And, I, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is going to be able to take some knowledge away from this episode. So without any uh, further ado, our, our guest for episode eight, Keith Surratt. All right, Keith Surratt, welcome to the Stones of Strength podcast. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's an honor. Yeah, this is, I, I've really been looking forward to this one, Keith, because I've had a lot of back and forth with a lot of stone lifters in my few years doing this, but there's nobody that I've talked to more about stones or strength than you. Like, we just have hours and hours, probably into the days now, of voice messages going <laughs> back and forth. And we have a constant, you know, rapport going back and forth and discussions about it. So I'm really happy that you decided to come on with us and share your knowledge and your experience with all of our listeners. Yes, again, thank you for having me. It's it's uh, it's a fantastic honor, and I am extremely happy to be here. Awesome. Right on. And this is kind of it's kind of a cool situation because David, you have so much history, and like David said, you guys have spent so much time chatting back and forth about stones and strength. Um, but as far as having a digital footprint to your stone lifting accolades, you know, you keep things quite private, right? You've got about six videos. Each of them is a, it's almost like a mini documentary of some of your, your lifts and, and your travels. So for me, you're a bit of a, an unknown entity as with a lot of the listeners. This is a really cool opportunity that we kind of get to pull the curtain back and, and learn about some of your adventures and, and, and some of your knowledge on strength building. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I am private, and uh, uh, but with that said, I I am happy to share everything. Um, but yeah, I I've always been a little bit torn with social media, um, and I think that just like any other tool, it depends on how you use it. And uh, mm -hmm. I want to make more of a connection with fellow stone lifters, so that's really why I'm here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. This this should hopefully help, and, yeah. and I'm excited yeah. for everyone to hear what you have to say, man. So, um, obviously, I know quite a bit about you from all of our, our back and forth, but Dale doesn't know too much about you, and a lot of people might not. So, can you maybe just, you know, like you said, uh, pull the blind back on, on your history of strength, your history of sport, and how you came to be such a successful and prominent stone lifter? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I've made myself a list just so I don't forget anything. Um, just yeah, right. just uh just to make sure that i everything is factually correct and uh it's been a fantastic opportunity for me to take a trip down memory lane and and to really um really think about uh you know why i do this and and what i've done and uh it's been fantastic so 
I got started, um, I first lifted weights just by the suggestion of a friend. I had a friend, uh, I worked with a guy and he lifted weights and he said, Hey man, you should, you should come lift some weights with me. And so we did, we started training that way. Uh, it's funny because I still remember the, the first pump that I ever got. Um, I did a bench press in my basement and, you know, just with some, you know, rinky dink weights. And yeah. uh, it was such a bizarre feeling. Uh, I, I didn't know, I, you know, I had never had a pump in my muscles in my entire life. And uh, it was so bizarre and unusual. And uh, we very quickly out, outgrew the, the basement. And uh, so we, we decided to join a local gym. So I, I trained, uh, I first joined a gym. It's still open to this day. It's called Defining Bodies. And I joined the gym and it was, it was a fantastic experience. And, uh, I, I, I went out and bought, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of bodybuilding. And I read the entire thing cover to cover the things like 800 pages. And, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I still remember what it was like to walk into the gym and, and feel stupid for lack of a better term. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, and, and I looked around, and I thought that everybody did know what they were doing, and this was even after reading Arnold's book. And so I, I also remember my very first experience getting stronger, which uh, even in those early days, it was a sign of, you know, uh, what my preference was. And yeah. so I was doing a set of uh, stiff-legged deadlifts, and I think I was using like a, 100 pounds, and I had done 10 reps the week before. And I was following a program from Arnold's book and I did a set of like 20 reps with that same weight the following week. And I thought, this is amazing. And, uh, you know, so the, the weights are the same and, uh, the movement is the same. So it must be that, you know, it must be me that has changed. And, uh, it was just, uh, an incredible thing. And I remember even then, and this was very early days, uh, first couple of months of training for sure. And I just thought, this this is something. And and so I was turned on to the strength side of it really from then. And uh, so I continued to train, um, you know, like a bodybuilder, I guess you would say, following one of Arnold's splits. But I was very, very fortunate to meet a guy named Chris Frost. He was my first real training partner. And he was uh he was in university he was taking uh kinesiology he had a personal training certificate he was a natural bodybuilder uh phenomenal phenomenal shape very muscular very aesthetic and very strong and he he ate perfectly he just did everything perfectly and so he was uh just a, a perfect mentor and i really got lucky because that was again very early days and it just set me on the right the right road and uh so from there i ended up uh, i ended up going to our local ymca so i switched gyms and at the ymca i i trained there i started getting into more powerlifting and i've never competed in powerlifting ever before but i trained just like a powerlifter would at least in those days and what's funny is I ended up uh, packing on slabs of muscle more so than when I had been training like a bodybuilder. It was pretty funny. Yeah. And uh, so I uh, I trained that way for a little while. And 
I I was at the the YMCA one day and I was uh, I was already a huge fan of Strongman. I owned all of the DVDs of the World's Strongest Man finals, um, the complete set. I had bought them off of eBay. It was the only place that you could buy them at the time. Yeah. And uh, I saw the guy at the gym and he had a Strongman T-shirt on. And I started talking to him. I had no idea who the guy was. And I started talking to him and I asked him about his shirt and I asked him if he competed in Strongman and he did. And I, I, I talked shop with him and, and it was absolutely fantastic. And so uh, the guy's name's Jay Smith. He's, he's a, I, I don't think he competes in Strongman anymore, but he was a fantastic strongman. And uh, we became very fast friends. He brought a log into the gym. That was my first experience with a strongman implement. And I was hooked. Uh, the Pressing a log was unlike anything I had ever done. And uh, he invited me out to his grandparents' house. That's who he lived with. And he said, we can train events, you know, once the weather warms up and it's nice outside. And so I went outside and I, I went uh, out to his place and trained outside and even that was cool because I had never trained outside before. And uh, so I, I, that's where I did my first ever stone. He had a 225 Atlas stone and I did lift it, but it was incredibly hard. It was max effort. I, I couldn't have done another five pounds, I don't think. Uh, no tacky at that time. Um, and it was, again, I was hooked. And uh, so there's a couple things that I vividly remember from those early strongman training sessions i would be so exhausted that when i would go home i would have to have a nap and oh, yeah. i was just a young guy at the time uh, i'm 44 now and uh it was i it was bizarre to me how i could you know let's say deadlift 500 pounds in the gym uh but walk a yoke 10 feet and and you know have to have a nap afterwards it was hilarious yeah. and yeah. uh so it was great. It was great. So from there, I uh, I started competing in strongman just locally, and I competed in strongman for ten years. And uh, eventually, I opened up my own gym. It's called Jones Gym. And really, it was it was a way for me to be able to have a place to train myself and. Uh, share my love and my passion of of lifting weights and strongman and and everything you know related to it so i would say that that would be my that would be my start as far as uh sports uh i did play a lot of sports and games growing up um baseball was my first love for sure i played little league baseball i played until i was about 10 years old I played hockey for a couple of years. Uh, I played basketball from the time I was about 12 until 14. Um, I then got into playing pool. Um, I played pool from the time I was about 15 until 30, so a very long time. And also during that time, I did that too. What's that? Don't skip out on your accomplishments with that. You're you're very good at pool. Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, I I won. Uh, two national championships as a junior and I went to the world championships twice and uh, uh, I finished um, 
they only invited 16 to the world championships each year. So, so I was automatically in the top 16 each time. Um, I played pool for a very long time. I absolutely loved it. Uh, it taught me a lot of life skills, a lot of things. And it also gave me the opportunity to travel a lot early in my life. And, uh, that, I think that's really important. Um, mm -hmm. so I was, I was very, very, uh, very lucky to have had those opportunities that early on. That really did, um, I think really, I think it gave direction in my life from an early age that was incredibly valuable. And, and in retrospect, I think one of the most important things that's ever happened to me for sure. Um, I, I, at that same time, I took up golf. Uh, I played golf from the time I was 19 until the time I was about 30. Uh, which is when I got into strongman, but I really only stopped playing golf because I opened the gym and there's only so much time, of course, and there's only so much you can do. And I, I absolutely loved golf and, and really miss it, especially miss the guys, the, the social part. And uh, I then competed in strongman for 10 years. And uh, so from when I was 30 to 40, basically, and I lifted uh, historical stones for the first time when I was 38. So that would be that would be my story. It's, uh, it's interesting hearing sort of your 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 origins with respect to strength training and building strength, but also then the other athletic endeavors that you were also doing, and how they all sort of seem to like you sort of went down the road from form with bodybuilding training down to function with strongman and stone lifting, and I feel like. The, the strong and the stone lifting is maybe a bit of an intersection between that strength-based training, but also what seems to be, you know, the, the analytical side of your mind that probably lent itself very well to golf and pool intersecting at strongman where you're pairing up the strength portion, which you're interested in, plus the sort of need to be solving puzzles and figuring out the implements in addition to being able, you know, strong enough to lift them. There's that sort of tactical aspect that probably, I'm guessing, sort of piqued your interest as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would agree completely. Um, I think that it's very interesting. It, it was also just a different time, too. Um, like, I think that it's kind of lost on this new generation that um, there was a time when people really only lifted weights to, to look better. Um, yeah. And that wasn't that long ago. And there especially wasn't a whole lot of information on powerlifting and certainly not strongman. Like I said, I, I needed to buy the DVDs off of eBay. Um, they, they weren't even the legitimate, you know, DVD, some guy had burned them off of something, you know, I, I don't even know. Um, so, but yes, I agree. And, and even powerlifting. So even though I, I trained like a powerlifter and, and very much enjoyed that, um, powerlifting is definitely limited in there's only three lifts and that's not to take anything away from powerlifting at all, because I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, similar to Olympic weightlifting, where there's only two lifts. Um, now, I think that strongman and CrossFit would be uh, much more similar to each other, although strongman wouldn't wouldn't like to hear that. Um, but uh, there's even a, a, another dynamic to CrossFit where you need to be extremely conditioned. So, of course, they're not lifting right. as heavy weights, but um, there's even more events to practice and to master. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, so sir. one of the big appeals with strongman certainly was the challenge of figuring out that puzzle for sure, mm -hmm. how to program for it, um, how to not overtrain, um, 
again, I was taking naps after my you know, first 10 training sessions. It's exhausting. Yeah. Um, there's just not many things that you can do in a day that would be as exhausting as an events day in Strongman. And um, yeah. yeah, and so then I think that carries over certainly to and and to go with pool or golf, which are certainly far less physical and uh, very technical. Uh, I agree. Um, I think that that helps with stone lifting tremendously in uh, again programming um, and being meticulous and um, being as technically efficient as possible um, to be able to get the absolute most out of your body. I mean, that's really, that's, that's really the goal in anything that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, and just for everyone listening, like Keith didn't just compete in strongman. You competed on a world stage a number of times. You're being very yeah. humble. You were very high level. Yeah. So I competed, um, I made it to the world championships four times, um, 2014 in Finland. And then the official Strongman Games three years in a row. Um, a lot of people know them as OSG. Um, 2017, mm -hmm. uh, they were in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. 2018, same location. And then 2019 in Daytona Beach. Um, but I will say this, that I was good enough to get there, but that was it. Um, those guys were absolutely at a different level. And I was not at that level. And uh, I feel as though it was uh, a fantastic accomplishment just to get there. Um, fantastic experiences. And I I really feel like um, almost as if I, I am the most overachieving strongman maybe in, in the 90 kilogram class. Um, and, and also, I do think worth mentioning that I am lifetime drug free. And uh, I, I, have, I have no idea, um, have no idea, you know, who's taking drugs there and who's not. Um, yeah. but there are certainly some guys that are on drugs. Um, and that obviously yeah. makes it. Yeah. 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 So I, I feel like I got, you know, really the most out of my body that I possibly could. And uh, the 2019 competition was my very last competition. I knew going into it that it was going to be my last and uh, I wanted to walk away on my own terms, which I did. And I was mm -hmm. happy with what I did. And uh, I've settled in nicely to stone lifting. It's been a fantastic transition. Talk about a hybrid athlete. I, I would challenge everyone listening to this to find someone else who has competed on a world level strongman as well as pool and no, golf. So no doubt. You might be up there with not, 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 not many others. So. Yeah, it, it it is quite funny actually because pool yeah. is is uh, so different than than strongman. Um, yeah, I, it's it's quite funny actually, but it it seems like almost a lifetime ago to me, and 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 I was certainly a different person then. I was much much younger, and and I I didn't lift weights at that time when I first started playing pool, and um, I very rarely play now. But even when like I'm talking about maybe once a year. And even when I go play now, I can still play very, very well. It's, 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 I definitely think I was more, uh, more of a natural in pool than any of the other things that I've done. I think that I, and that's what I mean when I say that I feel like I'm an overachieving strongman and even stone lifter, because I don't think that I necessarily have great genetics for this. Uh, Dave and I have talked about this uh, a lot, even just recently. I definitely think that I have good genetics for resiliency and um, not getting injured. Um, and those are really important. Um, mm -hmm. But I think as far as 
as far as the other stuff goes, um, I, I just feel like I really got everything out of my body that I possibly could have. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, you should yeah, be. Absolutely. And it, it's, <clears throat> so you and I have got to know each other quite well over somewhere around the past year. And, and just maybe two weeks ago, you had mentioned your pool background. And yeah. when you had seen that, it actually didn't surprise me at all. Learning, like knowing what I know about you with your mind, because you are a very analytical man. And so when you said pool, I went, of course he was, because it just <laughs> made so much sense to me. Yeah, again, um, that game, it, it came very natural to me. And uh, now I, I did play hours and hours and hours a day, um, sure. which you need to do in, in anything to develop. But um, I was definitely given better cards in that particular game, I think. <laughs> Awesome. Well, why don't we jump into now stone lifting? Yeah. Natural stone, historic stone lifting. Tell us about that. How you went from strongman to being like you. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You just finished your fourth stone lifting tour and your 50th historical stone. Yes, that's right. Yep. So, successful lifts. Yeah. All you haven't too, missed right? a single no. lift yet. Yeah. I hope you didn't just jinx me. Um, <laughs> so, oh, hey, man, that's amazing. Rocking on wood. That's the thing with uh, with historical stones. There are many variables, many factors. Um, you know, you're not sleeping in your own bed. You're not sleeping. Uh, you're not sleeping in your own bed. You're not eating your own food. Um, you are sometimes driving on the wrong side of the road. Um, sure. I, I one time had traveler's diarrhea, and that was absolutely terrible. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do not recommend that. Um, yeah. no. so there are those factors and then there's the weather. Um, if you're going to go to Scotland, it's going to be wet. It's, um, it's inevitable. The stones are going to yeah. be wet and they're going to be more difficult. Um, there's yeah. jet lake. Um, this trip from Sweden coming back is the worst I've ever experienced. It took me five days to recover. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, I I think absolutely some you know some luck involved um because again you you can't you can't attempt a stone 10 times there are other stones that you're going to and um absolutely I think skill in reading the stones and um and I I what I personally like to do is of course have a look at the stone first but I like to put my hands on the stone as quick as possible because one of the things that I've learned is oftentimes a stone looks like it will lift easier in a certain way. But once you put your hands on it, it, it just does not feel that way. And I think that certainly how the stone feels is much more important than how the stone looks. Um, and even finding handles, it's very, very interesting. Um, it's the same is true for finding handles of a stone. I think I, there are there are times when if it's a difficult stone to read, um, I will put my hands on that stone and I will you know work my way around that stone in every conceivable way, and 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 sometimes you have to abandon a handle or a grip that you think is superior because it's not. Um, you get feedback on your first attempt, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. So. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off track there, but to, to answer your question, um, I got into stone lifting through a friend of mine, Terry McKay, and he, he went to Scotland, and he was fortunate enough to be toured around by Peter Martin himself. Oh, and, amazing. 
Yeah. So I knew I knew Terry McKay from competing in strongman with him and against him. Um, and he, he was a farmer and a super strong guy, fantastic at stones. And he had a family tie to the Strathmore of Durnets. And so, wow. uh, yeah, so it's very cool. Um, so he had correspondence with, with Peter Martin. And Peter could not go to that particular stone with him, but was going to travel to the other stones with him. So Terry was going to the Strathmore of Durness himself. And Peter told him, uh, you know, if you lift this stone, you would probably be the first McKay to lift it in 200 years. So absolutely no pressure. No pressure. Oh, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. And so, of course, uh, Terry did lift the stone and met up with Peter the next day. And they toured around and, and lifted, I think, seven or eight more stones after that. Um, so um, he came back and I uh, I had my own gym at that time. I was already opened and we talked about the stones and, and he said how it was a life changing experience for him. He highly recommended that I go. And uh, I, I, I talked with Terry often. And um, so we talked about it numerous times. And then Rogue's documentary Stoneland came out and I I watched it and I remember I was laying in my lazy boy and after that finished I I committed to going to Scotland right then and there and I had a I had a question you know can I lift those stones and there's only one way to to get an answer and so I actually called Terry on the phone from my lazy boy and he said that he would contact Martin Jancix and he did and I spoke to Martin you know in just a couple of days and Martin agreed to tour me around Scotland. And so, yeah. So, I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. Um, here's the guy that's, you know, one of the, one of the guys that's in the documentary himself. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm meeting with him in Scotland. Um, so I, I went in October of 2017. That was my first trip to Scotland. Not to uh, take this on too much of a tangent, maybe just touch on this real quickly because you said at the beginning of the episode that, you know, part of what you want to do is get a little more um, familiar with some of the other members of the stonelifting community. But even yeah. just that experience right there with Martin sort of defines what the stonelifting community is like. They're just a lot of amazing people, amazingly strong people that are willing to help, willing to share their time and share their knowledge. The fact that you kind of went straight to someone who had just been featured in a prominent documentary and he was willing to carve out time to take you on a stone tour just shows that there's just, it's passion. It's, it's, it's camaraderie, it's connection. Like all of those things are what makes this community. I don't want to say different than other strength communities, but at least in my experience, such a, such a cool group of people to be involved in. So. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, Martin took time off. Um, he, he, he took his weekend off from work to, to tour me around. So those were his only days off. That's time yeah. away from his family, which is not lost on me. And uh, yeah, and we make a connection in that one trip that will last a lifetime. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Yeah. It's and beautiful. So speaking of Scotland and stone lifting, um, that's kind of how we first got linked <laughs> up. And so uh, why don't you tell that? Cause we weren't there. We just heard about you afterwards, but it's kind of interesting how we ended up uh, linking up. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it is. It's uh, it's funny how these things go. Um, 
So I, I went to Scotland in uh, 2022. It was uh, September, and which was the same time you guys were there, right? And I knew that, uh, Dale, I didn't know that, I, I knew that you were there, but I hadn't followed you on Instagram. And I did know that Dave was there because I was following Dave on Instagram. And, and so basically what was happening was you guys were lifting stones in Scotland and, uh, Barbara and I, my girl, um, we were about two days behind you guys following you around Scotland, lifting somewhat of the same stones. Um, so the flight home, we were flying back to Toronto and I had a Donald Denny t-shirt on. We were sitting at the very back of the plane and your dad uh, came down to just simply use the washroom. And he happened to notice my Donald Denny t-shirt. It's uh, He's lifting the Denny stones in it. And he said, uh, my son just lifted the Denny stones. And uh, I said, what is your son's name? And he said, Dave. And I said, yeah, I know exactly who he is. I said, I lifted the Denny stones as well back in 2017. And he, of course, couldn't believe it because there's just not that many people that lift historical stones to begin with. Um, not Canadian. Dude, yeah. You forgot to mention that, that you're, you're a fellow Canadian, opposite side of the country, but still yeah. a fellow Canadian. Yeah, uh, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. So I live right on the ocean. Uh, my gym is approximately 500 feet from the ocean. And, oh, cool. uh, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so we, we, I said, listen, I would love to, I would love to talk. Do you have time after the flight? And he said, absolutely. And so, uh, Barbara and I stopped and spoke to your parents after the flight. And, uh, I, we talked for, I'm sure, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and it was great. We had a connecting flight to get to. So, uh, we talked as long as we could. And, uh, and so then Dave reached out to me on Instagram, uh, I don't know, maybe a week or two later, something like that. And uh, that's that's how we met. Yeah, it's too funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah, it is. And so your first tour, you said in 2017, was in Scotland. Yes. And you lived eight stones. Is that right? Uh, ten stones. Ten stones. Ten stones. Yeah. And then... I, I guess if you're going to call okay. it any stones, too, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. Um, and then from there, you came home and and sounds like you were bit with the bug. How soon after coming back from Scotland did you start making plans to visit? Was it Iceland next or Sweden? It, w it was Iceland next. Yeah. So it was yeah. uh, it was Iceland 2019. It was in uh, end of May, first uh, of June, and and then Scotland again in 2022 in September. And then just most recently, Sweden in August of 2023. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, I, I think that, so the drawl of Iceland was, uh, I always, it, it worked out extremely well because Stoneland comes out and I, I then go to Scotland for my first time. And I have plans of going to Iceland next to attempt the Husafell stone. And I've known about the Husafell stone forever. Um, final boss. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> That's the final boss. Yeah. That's the final yeah. boss. And, first uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, again, like I, I, I remember watching it, uh, The World's Strongest Man in Iceland in 1992. Um, I, had watched, I had watched Steve Jack's documentary of the, the, the Husafell. 
Um, it was it was just something that somehow I always knew about anyway. And um, mm. so it became very, very natural for me to want to attempt the Husafel next. Um, and then I heard through the grapevine that Rogue was going to be doing a documentary on the Icelandic stones. So it couldn't have worked out any better because then I could watch the documentary. Um, I was already preparing for Iceland to begin with. And so mm -hmm. it just couldn't have worked out any better. Um, yeah, it, I, I would say that I already had a deep appreciation for, um, for historical stones even before I lifted them. Um, it's, I revere stuff like this. Um, I love the continuity. The tradition is incredible. The people, obviously. Um, so the trips were exactly how I thought they would be. Um, and somehow, somehow they have continued to be just as magical as the last. Yeah. And um, I don't know how else to say it. It, it has been absolutely magical. Um, in fact, I'll tell you about my, the very first historical stones that I ever lifted were the Dinnies, and I purposely didn't train for it at all. I wanted to see if I would be able to do it with zero training whatsoever. So I, I didn't have any loading pins. I didn't do any of those lifts. Um, and so I, I'm going to, I'm going to go off on a tangent just for a second. So, um, my grandfather died um, 11 years ago now, and when I left the hospital, he had, he had died of cancer. When I left the hospital, I was driving home, and above the ocean, just above the ocean that I was just talking about, 500 feet away from my gym, it was, uh, the sunlight was breaking through the dark clouds, and there were these rays, these sunbeams of light breaking through the dark clouds, and and uh, that was after immediately leaving the hospital. And so I wanted to know if I could lift the Denny's. And again, there was only one way to answer that question. So I bought a ticket and I went. And the day that I was I was driving to the Denny's to attempt them, I was by myself because I hadn't met with Martin yet. He was meeting me there. And so I was completely by myself and I was listening to music and I was feeling good and I just became completely overwhelmed with emotion thinking about my grandfather and mm -hmm. I thought how proud of me he would be for for making it happen for having a dream having a question and finding an answer to it one way or the other mm -hmm. and um I I cried like a little baby the the entire drive to the Denny Stones and so when I got to the Denny Stones, and, and obviously, you know, being an emotional wreck is, is not the best preparation for such a lift. Um, so I, I got myself together the best I could. And I had already been in Scotland for about four days at that point. And I needed to, you know, make my way up north to be able to attempt the Denny's. And it rained the entire time. It had been raining the entire trip. Everything was wet. And so... I really wasn't sure how it was going to go because it was raining and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to especially hold on to them. And I, I do have a very good grip, but they, they were, they were wet. The rings were wet. And so I, I got, I got changed into my kilt and um, I, I went outside and 
all of the clouds broke and the sun started, you know, breaking through the clouds just like it had that day that my grandfather had died. So it felt like he was there with me. And I had just been thinking about him for the entire drive there. And the sun broke and and it came out and, and it, it was like a spotlight shining on me and it, it stayed sunny for, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or however long it took to warm up and lift the dinnies and be done. And then it clouded back over and it was rainy and miserable for the rest of the day again. So oh, cool story. It, yeah. Yeah. So it, it was, it was absolutely magical. And, um, and it's a day that I will never forget. Those were the very first stones that I ever lifted. And so that was my very first ever experience. And and then on top of that, of course, um, so Martin Jancic is there. Uh, um, Brett Nickel is there. Um, and Jim and Rosemary Splain are both there. And so it's this fantastic group of people. They couldn't be any more helpful and, and, and supportive. And, um, it just adds to the experience. And, um, so I have this magical moment that I get to hold on to forever for the rest of my life. And so, uh, I can't say that I, that I expected such a thing to happen. Um, but all of my stone lifting trips somehow have been exactly what I expected them to be, which is life changing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is such a neat, neat story. And it's all, I, I didn't, I don't believe I was aware that you hadn't even trained with loading pins before. Yeah. So, um, I, I wanted to do it, um, you know, without training, I, I, I wanted to do it in, in the way that I thought, you know, uh, Donald Denny and Robert Denny would have done it themselves. Um, sure. and that was the best I could do. Um, you know, they didn't have a gym to train in, you know, to, to squat and deadlift like I do. Um, so it's certainly not the same thing. Um, but I wanted to do it without any specific training. And I honestly had no idea whether or not I would be able to lift them. Wow. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Not to wax poetic on people, but really there's no more, you were saying that you wanted to have an honest answer. Were you strong enough? Yes or no. And there really is no more honest test of your strength than you versus a stone, right? Yeah. A lot of the variables uh, are, are out of your control. Other than your preparation, which in this case there, there was none, <laughs> but for the most part, it's 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 you versus the stone, and and you're strong enough or you're not, and that's kind of it. You know, weather can have an impact, but other than that, it's 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 are you strong enough to lift that stone, yes or no? So, yes, I, and with those particular stones, I mean, they're the only thing that could really hurt you would be the rain, you know, and uh, making the handles wet and and losing the grip. I think that that would be the big thing. Other than that, of course, if you're strong enough, you're going to stand up with them. Well, your grandfather took care of that problem for you. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, right. it, it's funny because he, he did get to see me compete in strongman, oh, um, awesome. but he, he didn't get to see me uh, lift any historical stones or watch any of the videos. And um, it, it's amazing how much life can change in such a short time because uh you know, lifting stones, lifting historical stones is my favorite thing that I've ever done. And yeah. it's hard to believe that while he was alive, I, I didn't even really uh, know about it. And mm -hmm. so uh, I'm just extremely grateful that I have found it. Yeah, it's here you there. 
it's such a it's such a niche thing, but something that maybe I mean you might know be, might not know it because you're not as active on Instagram unless you 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 know you're on it just not posting a lot. But um, the amount of stone lifting competitions, people who are creating their own stones of strength, uh, the amount of sort of more you know more mainstream podcasts, especially by way of someone like David Kyoen, who's such an incredible ambassador for stone lifting, like people are becoming more aware of stone lifting, which for me, it's such a great thing because it is now a shortcut for people who may have found their way to stone lifting in a meandering way, sort of like you have as the evolution of, of sort of your your uh, interest with, with strength competitions and gaining strength. People are getting exposure to it and now finding it quicker. And so the community is growing really quickly. A lot of very, very enthusiastic, passionate people are finding stone lifting, whereas, you know, prior to Instagram and podcasts and things, they they, they may not have. So. It's pretty neat to see people, especially lifting their first stone. You just it's, uh, you see that sort of transformative experience that you're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and anybody that has lifted stones knows exactly what that feeling feels like. And yeah. and I think that there's just something about traveling to a foreign country to do it. You know, yeah. um, you can't just go down to your local gym and do it on a whim. And so yeah. I think that. For that simple fact, I think that most of the people that are going to travel are going to be respectful of the stones and the tradition, and they're going to know the history and the tradition of that stone. And um, But I agree with you. Social media is a powerful, powerful tool. And uh, I do follow things on social media. I just, I guess, choose to not really participate in it that much right. other than just, you know, standing back and, and, and watching what's happening. And um any of the communication that I have with, with people is almost exclusively private uh, by private message. Um, but I do stay in contact with a lot of stone lifters because I, I love talking stone lifting. And, um, mm-hmm. but I am trying to open up um, publicly more and more because uh, I, I just, again, well, what you said is that, that first stone, that feeling um, I can obviously relate to that. And I want as many people as possible to experience that same thing because it's it's absolutely beautiful. It was like that first that first pump you were talking about when you were a kid, getting those yeah. weights and doing bench press, right? It's that first pump feeling. Yeah. Yeah, well, I got to say the first pump feeling was actually very bizarre to me. Um, <laughs> the uh, lifting stones or overcoming, you know, an object, not even necessarily a stone, but this is obviously a, a stone lifting podcast. Uh, there is just something fantastic about, you know, man versus stone. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, a strong man and stone lifting seem to go hand in hand with a lot of people, but I almost see stone lifting as, as strong man when it first started, because as much as I love strong man and, I've competed not not at the level you have, but even most modern strongman implements are designed to be as efficient as possible, to lift it as easily as possible, so the weight can go up, right, as high as possible, versus the old days was how weird or awkward is the object, and can you lift it? Sure, it's it's a lot less in weight, but it's almost a more impressive lift because it's designed not to be lifted, and that's kind of, that's, that's natural stone lifting the way that I look at it. Yeah, I agree. And and all of sports have changed in that way that the technology of the equipment always evolves and always makes the task easier for the athlete. Um, so it's 
it's very interesting because there was a like I mean a, a lot of people don't even know um, you know the history of strongman and why it started, but it, it's the idea of who is the strongest. Is it a bodybuilder? Is it a football player? Is it a powerlifter? So let's invite all of these guys together. Let's not tell them the events and let's see who the best is. You know, there can be only one. And sort of like mixed martial arts when it first came out, original right? UFC. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. From, from different sporting backgrounds and combat backgrounds and see who rises to the top. Yeah. Yes. And, and as you guys well know, also triathlons. Same yeah. thing. Who's the best athlete? Is it a swimmer? Is it a cyclist? Is it a runner? Let's find out. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing a video a little while ago, one of the events at World Strongest Man, they were shoveling, shoveling gravel into a basket. So yeah, it's yeah. Actually not a bad thing that they moved away from events like that. But I do think <laughs> they make things more efficient so that the numbers can go up and the spectacle is greater. When you talk yeah. about someone doing a 1000 pound lift, right? Right. It's, it's, it's same as a lot of sort of assisted powerlifting styles. It's, it's, it's impressive. It's incredible, but it's not the same sort of, physically demanding thing as you versus a stone so yeah strongman has changed uh, a tremendous amount and um it, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from here um it is interesting though natural stones are making their way back into uh, strongman yeah. competitions in in recent times and uh there's always been uh, almost you know trends in certain lifts in strongman throughout its entire history um, and I think that that's true of any other sport as well, um, where there are choices to be made. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see where strongman goes from here. But I do think that if you're doing a one rep max in the in the deadlift or in the log or something like that, it, it puts butts in seats and, and sells tickets. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that it is a business. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and we've talked about it before, but was it uh, 2019 Arnold's where they lifted the Odd so. Hogan's tombstone? Yeah, and it yeah. showed you how hard it was for these world class strength athletes to lift that stone, which in some cases was maybe only slightly above their own body weight. Now, of course, these are giant men, but you see people on Instagram quite often lifting stones that are the same as their body weight, greater, and in some cases, like David lifted a stone that's twice his body weight. So yeah. it, uh, it, yeah. it shows you. So lifting is, is is very different it's something it's something you have to really practice and you have to train for it's so. some specialty yeah yeah i yeah. i agree and and uh i do think that as as these competitions happen um with stones more regularly you are going to see the athletes rise you know um yeah and and you're going to see them practice the lifts more um you know that's the thing with an atlas stone it's a standardized piece of equipment and they allow tacky. And so, you know, a, a round concrete ball is the same no matter where you are. Right. 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 So it is. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, yeah, just in, in talking about something, stones being something you have to practice and train for, like you're obviously a very measured and calculated person. And as you said before, when you go on these stone tours, you really kind of get a very, very small window with these stones where you have to figure them out and yeah. lift them. It's not something that you can try, you know, go to max effort, fail, come back a couple days later, try again, try again. You've got to read the stone. You've got to lift the stone as quickly and efficiently as possible to preserve yourself for the next stone. So how did you go about, let's say, for example, for Iceland and, and prepping for the Husafell? How did you go about programming and, and training for that stone, knowing that, you know, 
you had one crack and in your instance, you were successful at getting it all the way around the pen. Yeah. So I would say that Iceland is the one trip that would be the exception to the other trips, the other stone lifting trips that I've done. Um, when I went to Iceland, the sole task was the Husafell stone. That was the sole reason that I was going. And although I, of course, planned to attempt the other stones, if I had only lifted or only had my chance, my opportunity at the Husafell stone, I, I would have been okay with that. So that it, it's, it's somewhat of a bad example of how I would typically um, prepare for a stone lifting tour. Um, but to still use Iceland as the example, um, I purposely chose to lift the Husafell first. And it's funny because you say you have one crack at it. I purposely attempted it on early in the trip. So that way, if I didn't lift it, I would potentially have a chance to go back. Um, right. Because yeah. with a stone like that, especially a carrying stone where grip is such a factor, um, learning the stone is unbelievably important, much more important than it would be for a stone that you're just standing up with, right? Yeah. So you could potentially lift the Husafell um, in not necessarily the easiest way to get the best grip. Um, so it really depends on the stone. Normally, if I'm lifting any, let's say, other stones where I'm only attempting to stand up with them, as you guys know, there are 10 ways that you could lift a stone. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I'm sure that the true, you know, the Husafell is, um, I'm sure that that pertains to the Husafell as well. In fact, I would say that because of its shape, it can probably be carried more ways than, than other stones, um, because it's flat and, and triangular like, um, yeah. so I would say that, um, with, with the Husafell, um, <sighs> The Husafell is the is my greatest accomplishment in my life, as far as I'm concerned, um, and I, I just don't think that I'm ever going to. I, I mean, I'm I'm going to try to find other things, um, but I don't know if it's going to happen. That's how important that stone is for me. Um, there is something about so Martin Jancic and Bill Crawford um, wrote a stone lifting book as I'm sure you guys know. And yeah. one of the things that Bill Crawford wrote in that book was, um, you know, to believe in yourself, but also doubt every step of the way and to not know. Um, it's such an unusual thing. And that's exactly how I felt. I felt as though I was training as hard as I possibly could. I felt like I was preparing myself as much as I possibly could in every possible way, every way that I could think of, every way that I could, uh, not just my own thoughts, but I, I spoke to other people. I was open to any suggestions on training methods to be able to conquer the Husafell. And so I, I, I was very strong with carrying stones. I had a great history of, of doing well in the Husafell carry in Strongman. Um, I actually won the, the Husafell carry at the Canadian Championships under 90 kilos, which is the weight class I competed in. Well, um, yeah. So I knew that I was good at it, but uh, I had tremendous doubt, and I had doubt right up until I did it. So uh, the day before the Husafell, I go to Thor's gym, and I get a day pass. Barbara and I get a day pass, and uh, this is... Thor is the current world's strongest man at that time. 
and he's a, yeah. attempting to defend his crown in approximately three weeks from from that day. And so this is he's 455 pounds. I, I asked him how much he weighed. And so this is prime Thor. He is he's the world's strongest man. And he's doing uh, strict log with 390 and he's doing triples with it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's the day before I'm a, I'm going to attempt the Husafel. So I'm doing a very light, easy shoulder workout uh, just to just to really see Thor's gym. And luckily, Thor happens to be there. So uh, it, this was his first gym. He's now in a bigger location and I haven't been to that gym, but the old gym was was quite small. It was actually smaller than my gym. And he only had one adjustable bench. So it was a rogue bench that went flat, you know, all the way up to shoulder press. And so I was doing some shoulder presses. And when he finished log pressing, he did multiple sets with the 390 strict press. And he was then going to do uh, steep incline dumbbell presses. And he he came over and he knew that I was using the bench. <laughs> He knew that I was using the bench, and he asked me if I was done with the bench, which I thought was fantastic, yeah. um, because it's his gym. He's literally the world's strongest man, and he's yeah. being polite enough to ask. And I say, I I'm actually not done with the bench. However, you take it, and uh, yeah. you just let me know when you're done, and it's all good. So it was quite funny. Uh, yeah. He proceeded to do 100-kilogram dumbbells, so 221 pounds in each hand for for uh, his work set. I think he did four reps. Holy. Yeah, so completely crazy stuff. Ridiculous. So once he finishes his training session, only then uh, I ask him for a photograph because I didn't want to bother him while he was training. And I told him that I was there to attempt the Husafel the following day, and I asked if he had any advice to give because he was also the world record holder for the greatest distance carried with the actual Husafel stone. And he said, he said, you know, he said, I will give you some advice. He said, the stone is very top heavy. He said, so what happens is people attempt to pick it. And as soon as it leaves the earth, it immediately falls forward. And he mm -hmm. said, in his opinion, a lot of people just simply give up on the on the lift at that time because the stone is literally falling away from them. He said, yeah. so you need to fight the stone, keep fighting the stone, and if you're strong enough, you'll be able to stand up with it. Because I had I had voiced my concerns about whether or not I was going to be able to pick it, and I felt as though I was strong enough to be able to walk it around. But again, of course, I'm not sure, and that's the whole point of being there. And so he said, it's a very difficult stone. He said, in fact, I brought Larry Wheels there, and Larry Wheels could not do it. And I couldn't believe it because Larry Wheels is a 900 pound, at that time, 900 pound deadlifter, 900 pound squatter. And he had attempted it and he couldn't do it. Um, I didn't ask and Thor did not elaborate on how he failed. Uh, I'm certainly sure that he would be able to stand up with it. I'm guessing he just couldn't walk it around. And so uh, the next day, um, Barbara and I go to Jean-Paul Sigmason's grave on the way. And we pay our respects, and we then drive to Husafel, and uh, the GPS coordinates were wrong. They actually told us that the stone was on the opposite side of the road, so we had to look for it for a little bit. And when we finally found it, it's an incredible location, um, absolutely stunning. And 
and barren. And uh, I started warming up. And when I first touched the stone, I thought that I didn't have a chance. The stone was so rounded and so smooth with no handles whatsoever that I thought that I didn't have a chance of getting the stone onto my lap. And so, of course, that's what I'm there to do. I, I warm up and I have to find that, find out, you know, an answer to my question. And so I warm up and I feel pretty good during warm ups. And I had purposely put a huge emphasis on the pick when pre when preparing for the Husafel because I didn't want to go there and be strong enough to carry it all the way around, but not be strong enough to display that because I can't get the thing into my lap. So yeah. it made more sense to purposely train the pick. And, you know, even if I can carry it 10 feet, that's certainly better than not being able to get the thing off the ground. Yeah. So I put a huge emphasis on the pick. I trained the two halves of the lift completely separated. Um, in fact, I literally never did a carry when picking it from the ground in the first place. I kept them completely separate. Um, and it worked extremely well because I got much, much stronger in the pick. My particular loadable Husafel stone is very, very big, which definitely makes it more difficult than most. And mm -hmm. it's just, uh, I, I made it when there were no dimensions on the internet. And uh, so I just had to guess. And uh, I would say that it's at least as thick as the real stone itself. So it it was more difficult to pick an equivalent weight than the real Husafel itself. And so I warmed up, and to my surprise, on my first attempt, I it, it popped up onto my lap somewhat easily. And uh, I really got to say, I think I was in shock. And uh, I had polyester pants. They were very, very slippery, which is funny because I thought about wearing my kilt, and I purposely chose to not wear the kilt because I thought that it would be more difficult and uh, yeah. add an element of uh, difficulty to the lift. And yep. these polyester pants were far worse. They were just a pair of gym pants. And uh, so I, I couldn't get, I couldn't stand up with the stone. I couldn't take a step. I, I and I lost my balance trying to flip the stone upward, uh, erect. And I lost my balance and the stone almost fell on me. I fell backwards mm -hmm. with the stone and I was fortunate enough to be able to dump it out of the way completely unharmed. And so I made a second attempt. The same thing happened, but this time I, so I get it onto my lap. I can't stand up with it. I can't get the stone erect. I don't even bother to waste any energy trying to really wrestle the stone because I, I know that it's a lost cause. And so I immediately drop it, put it down. And, and then Barbara says, why don't you try some jeans? Why don't you wear your jeans? And I thought that is brilliant. And I oh, put my jeans on. Jeans. That's my go-to. Yeah, yeah. And again, my buddy Terry McKay says you did it like a real farmer, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I put the jeans on and I chalked up and uh, on my third attempt, um, that made all the difference in the world. I, I do think actually in retrospect that a kilt would have been fine if it was short enough for the stone to get onto this, you know, the skin of my thighs. Mm -hmm. uh, I yeah. think that would actually work very well um, if the kilt was short enough. So once I stood up with it, uh, I felt very, very confident. Um, it felt pretty good, actually. But I did recognize that I was moving too slowly. And I think that that is something that is really important um, to hear for anybody that's thinking about 
training for the Husafel and attempting it. So I'll go off on a tangent just for a second here. Um, I watched as many videos as I possibly could. I timed all of them. I counted the strides, the steps that people took. And I, I noticed a pattern that everybody that did it without in, in one pick, without dropping it, just in one carry, um, did it from 21 seconds to 32 seconds. So during my preparation, I purposely went with the longer time duration, and I did every single carry for at least 30 seconds to get used to that duration. Um, I think that people don't look at it as a speed event, but it is. Of course, when you pick it up, you have a finite amount of time before that is going to drop from your arms. And yeah. for most people, I think that the weak link is going to be the arms. It's going to slip out of their arms somehow. And so you need to get it done as fast as you possibly can. So I think that if you look at it more from a speed event, even though it's not being timed, I think that that's a better way of training it. And so you weren't training for distance. You were training specifically for time in the carry position. Correct. Correct. So uh, yeah. like it's nobody uh, for some reason nobody has actually measured the distance around the pen um it seems like there's conflicting numbers as to how far around the pen is um so one thing i will say is the pen is very very small in person but that's deceptive because you're not walking around the pen where the stones are you're walking you know let's say five or six feet away from those stones so the circle that you're going to, to make is actually much bigger than the pen itself. But it doesn't mm -hmm. look like it's it's it certainly doesn't look like it's nearly as far around as the numbers that I've read. And so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so in training, in preparation for it, I would purposely walk for 30 seconds, even if I was able to double the distance of the pen. Uh, I couldn't care less. It was the it was the time I wanted to make sure that I was capable of walking for that period of time. And so then I knew that it didn't really matter what the distance was because I would be able to hold on to it for, let's say, 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so I purposely went with worst case scenario. And uh, I did do walks right up until uh, I did walks up to 400 pounds in training as well. And again, that's with my loadable. I didn't do any walks with stones. Um, I purposely only used the loadable Husafel that I had. And I did go as heavy as 400 pounds. Um, I think the heaviest walk that I did do for for the for the time duration though for the 30 seconds I think was I think was 350 pounds. Um the 400 pounds I was not able to walk that that duration. Um but it was and this was I think somewhat of a mistake. It was my very first time training outside and I was walking on grass and it was wet. And I do highly recommend that anybody that wants to attempt the Husafel, they, they, they do walk in a circle. It is completely different. And uh, I didn't have any chalk. And uh, it made a massive difference because my Husafel is painted and it's very, very slick. So uh, I think that 400 pounds in my loadable Husafel is actually far more difficult than the Husafel stone itself. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I, I started walking. Um, as fast as I possibly could. And even within the first uh, 10 feet, I recognized that I wasn't walking fast enough. And as you know, you have time to have the longest conversation in the world with yourself. And so I say, you got to pick up speed and I start faster steps. And then I settle in and it feels very good. And I get 
exactly halfway. And I am so confident because I know that I'm halfway and I know I'm going to be able to do it because it feels so solid. And as soon as that thought enters my mind, the stone immediately slips. Yeah. And oh. yeah. And uh, usually with a stone like that, you it, it immediately falls out of your arms. You can't really save it. Um, luckily, I, I was able to save it and uh, I stopped very quickly, very briefly and uh just uh you know reset my grip and as soon as i stood up i i i absolutely knew that i was going to be able to finish it because i was locked in it was no longer in a position that it could slip and um and i carried it around i completed the lap and i i put it down and i i know for sure that i could have gone farther i have no idea if i could have gone any any you know I don't know if I could have gone another quarter lap, another lap and a half. I have no idea. And uh, I actually like not knowing. And I have no intentions on ever lifting that stone again. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Well, the, and, and the reason why is because I don't want to, the, the, the moment was so magical for me that I don't want to ruin it. I want to leave it as a singular moment in my life. And I could go there and I could carry it for two laps and it would not be as good of a, an, an yeah. accomplishment as, as the first time I did it. Uh, just because you cannot replicate that first experience. You only get that first time once. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a couple. I took a few notes there just in that, that discussion there. I'll touch back on them. So you mentioned about the distance around and there's definitely varying uh, distances that I, I've read and I've heard of. And I thought of Ryan Stewart when you mentioned that, just pulling his mustache hairs out. But he, because <laughs> I, I, I messaged Ryan and he said with full Ryan confidence. Ryan does have a fantastic mustache. What's that? Ryan does have a fantastic mustache. It's good there. I just, yeah, he, he says, uh, he says with the confidence that Ryan says things with that it is 98 feet around. So I'm not sure if they measured it, but because I'd asked him, I said, I've read 120 feet. And he said it is 98 feet around. Um, that okay. being said, yeah, so that's, he said that with full confidence. And I didn't, I didn't grill my take, like everything I take Ryan at his word because he, he knows his stuff. But with that being said, there's two other things I wanted to touch on as you and I discussed the Husafel in detail, uh, probably coming up to a year ago. And you, you had mentioned the 30 seconds of training thing, uh, the yep. training time. And so I've kind of done, you know, I'm nowhere near ready for the Husafel yet, but I have, there's two things I've been implementing. In my training, number one is training with time. So when I train in my garage gym, um, even if I, I do a lot of yoke carries just to get my frame ready for the weight, and I make sure that I'm doing, it's just forward and back, but I'm doing it slower, but making sure my time is there. And that I definitely feel the endurance coming from that. But then I also, where we do our stone lifting, we do laps around, there's picnic tables there, and we've measured them. And I think they're between 75 and 80 feet, so just shy of what the Husafel is, but it's absolutely a different thing walking in a circle. You're twisting, yes. you're twisting, the way that your hips have to take the weight, the way that your body actually carries the weight, everything is different. So um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is is the time under tension is an amazing element to keep in the back of your mind, but also, again, I haven't done the Husafel yet, but it is a huge difference training in a circle. And it's, you, yeah. you know, you got to, this all of the, if you want to nail you got to practice all the elements or at least that's yeah. what i'm trying to do. I, I agree and i i think that training in your basement and having uh short 
run with multiple turns with more turns than more turns than you would normally have I, I think is a very good way to train actually and I have specifically trained that way on purpose um, because turning is by far the most difficult thing um, Terrible. Yeah. yeah it is because you have to decelerate you have to hit your line if you have a line that you're crossing with your foot you then have to turn your body around and then you have to create some momentum and you have to start accelerating and you start decelerating like quite a quite a good distance before you get to the line so there really is a lot of uh a lot of movement a lot more movement than uh than in a regular carry and and certainly a walk is just a completely different animal again um to go back to um ryan's distance of 98 feet do you know if that is the stones themselves or where you actually walk your path of travel that's yeah. your path of travel is yeah. my understanding and um, okay follow up with Ryan, but he, you know, he didn't even hesitate. He didn't flinch. He said it's 98 feet around. And yeah, it's it's definitely shorter than, uh, and and I, I definitely believe that number. Um, the number that was always thrown out there was, and, and was generally accepted, was 50 meters, so approximately 150 yeah. feet. And yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that it's not that. Um, so I have a 40-foot track in my gym where I was doing my walks, and I was doing 160 feet, um, so a turn every 40 feet, and that was taking me approximately 30 seconds at the speed that I was able to go. But the turns really slow you down. So, like, if you're doing only, let's say, 20 feet, then you're not going to be able to cover nearly as much distance. And, of course, to exaggerate the point, if you were to walk 160 feet straight in a, in a line, it, you'd, you'd be able to do it much, much faster. Absolutely. Yeah, something really interesting you touched on, and it's maybe a it's a great takeaway for any stone lifter who is trying to lift a stone and is unable to do so is self reflection and examining those points of failure. So as you did when you were reviewing video of other people, realizing that really it's it's not the distance that was stopping people; it was their ability to hold that weight for twenty to thirty seconds. Right, the point of failure wasn't their legs or their hips or their glutes. It was their wrists or their forearms, and it's something yeah. that I think a lot. Of, okay, yeah, it's I, something a lot of people do maybe when they're lifting stones sorry. is take a look and say, "The reason I couldn't lift that stone, it might not be because I couldn't." You know, it doesn't mean go back to the gym and do heavier squats or heavier deadlifts. Take a look and figure out what it was about that lift that that caused you to fail. Was it your wrist? Was it uh, was it your you know your drive off of the floor? Was it engaging your hips or your glutes when you're trying to stand with it? Like break things down and take that analytical approach because that'll really help you because it is, as David has said many times, you know, it's a strength puzzle. So you have to treat it and break it down as a puzzle. Look at the individual pieces and how they fit together to make the full picture. And that's how you figure out why it is you're not being successful for certain stones or certain lifts. I agree. And, and especially the Husifel, I really like the term strength puzzle as well. I think that that's a fantastic term. So I think that because the distance is so short with the real stone, I think that most of the time the failure is in the arms and, and not in not really in the body. I think that mm -hmm. when you are carrying, let's say, a, a lighter stone for a greater distance where you're, um, you know, able to hold it in your arms um, and the limiting factor is not not the arms as much as it is the distance itself, especially if you're doing a max carry, then I think that that's when the glutes and the hamstrings start to go, start to fatigue. And I also think that um, 
a factor, especially with a lot of the big guys that try the Husafel, is they, they gas out pretty quickly. I think that that's yeah. a factor as well. And I think that being able to relax and breathe when carrying the stone um, is an incredibly, incredibly important thing. Um, I realized I just discovered this when when training the Husafel one time uh, a long time ago for a strongman competition. Um, having the stone on my chest. So naturally, the more you lean back, the more weight, the more, the more weight you of that stone you feel on on your body. Um, right. So it takes the weight off of the arms, which is of course good for the arms, but bad for the body and bad for breathing. And so what I discovered is I, I wasn't relaxing as much as I could. And so I purposely and consciously tried to relax more and more. And I really tried to push it and see how much I could relax. And it's interesting because you can relax, or at least I could, far more than I thought that I would be able to. You would think that if you're carrying a 410-pound stone that you're not going to be able to relax, but you can, especially if you train yourself to do so. And so I think that that's a big factor. I think that a lot of people are squeezing it as tight as they possibly can from the from the get-go. And I think that's a I think that's a mistake. I think they're better off actually holding on to it as as loosely as possible. Um, mm -hmm. A good example would be if you are hanging from a chin-up bar, let's say, for maximum time. If you squeeze the bar as hard as you possibly can from the very first second, you might only be able to hold on for 30 seconds because you're you're trying as hard as you possibly can and you're fatiguing those muscles faster. If you were to hang from that bar with the least amount of effort possible um, and then only gradually increase your squeeze as you need it, you will inevitably be able to hold on to that bar much, much longer. I think it's uh, similar to that. Uh, of course, you don't want to hold on to it too lightly because the stone may slip. So I think you can make the argument perhaps that I hadn't held on to the stone as tightly as I should have, which is maybe why it moved. I don't know. Um, but no, it's a very, sense. very interesting. It's a very interesting stone because there aren't a lot of carrying stones, and it's a completely different element that is completely different than just standing up with a stone. No, that's a good point, though. D don't create fatigue. Mm. Don't create fatigue that's not already there by way of what you're doing. So. And that makes you know. I, I was actually writing something down here to remember to bring up, and you kind of covered it, but then made a great analogy with the hanging uh, part. Because let's say you're 200 pounds. And your hands need to hold on to 200 pounds, 100 each hand, to make sure you don't fall. If you're squeezing with, uh, you know, 125 pounds per hand, you're going to fatigue a lot more because you're doing that much more work than you actually need to sustain it. And that's kind of an interesting balance that I'm trying to find right now with my training is, you know, so when I'm carrying a stone, like I did about 80 feet with a 355 pound stone, and it took the wind out of me like I it wasn't my muscles it, it it was the crushing sensation on my chest but then I went home um and you know within a month or whatever it was and I put 410 pounds in my loadable Husafel and I was able to carry it 80 80 feet pardon me and so I don't know if because of the the shape of the stone I was able to take more in my arms and therefore less on my body crushing me less or, or what it was, but that's kind of the interesting battle that I'm having where I think I have the strength to carry it, but it's if I lean too far back, then I'm just getting, I'm getting smothered. Like that's the weight of a black bear on your chest, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I've got to maybe yeah. focus more on what you're saying is, is lean a little bit more forward, 
have faith in your, your arm strength and stop using your chest as like the mat for it to lay on and walk. Well, I think it's, I, I would say that it's more individual than that, but I would agree for the most part that I, I think a person needs to, you may need to lean back more than other people and, and, and so on. But I think that everybody needs to relax as much as they possibly can and, and go as fast as they possibly can with their feet. And yeah, uh, yeah th those would be the big things. Um, I think that there's like, even even the arms, um, like a lot of people carry the Husafel in their hands and, and I prefer to carry it in more what I would call my hooks. So more, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah, but with that said, um, the, the Husafel itself, I, I ended up carrying it more in my hands rather than those hooks, even though I wanted those hooks because of the shape and size of the stone. And, and I might, you know, if I had attempted the stone again, perhaps I would have carried it a different way because that particular stone can be carried many different ways. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Obviously, you're going to be able to regulate your grip and you're going to be able to, if hanging from a bar, you're going to be able to feel the, how much you need to squeeze. Whereas with a stone, you're not necessarily going to know. And it's certainly better to err on squeezing a little bit too hard rather than not hard enough because then it will fall. Um and that's where practice with that particular stone would make a huge difference. And I think that that's one of the big, big problems with the Husafel is that it's so heavy that you don't get the opportunity to do very many attempts because it's going to gas you out. You're going to attempt it and it's going to gas you out and you're probably not going to have that many quality attempts with that stone. Again, it's completely different than a stone that you're just standing up with. Walking a stone, let's say you walk it three quarters of the way and and you drop it and now you're going to attempt to do a full circle with it um you're probably gassed and it's going to be extremely difficult for you and you may have been strong enough to do it fresh but you know perhaps that time is passed now yeah well it's very very good point your issue with breathing though so if you had a two-dimensional figure like i do that problem isn't as bad. So when you have a concave chicken chest, so you can put the Lucifer across your shoulders. It's in contact with the front of your shoulders, and you've got about four inches of space within which your chest can rise and fall without hitting the stone. So I wish that was the I've, case. I've figured it out. Yeah. Okay, I like it. <laughs> well, one thing is true for sure is that uh, it's practice is is going to help no matter what because even even if you're you know as long as you're willing to experiment and be open minded. I, I think that that is where you're going to learn. And, and if you're lucky enough to have people that you train with that have an educated eye, uh, whether it be a coach or whether it's a person in person, um, the combination of those things, I think, is going to be what's really going to allow you to get the most out of your body. Uh, it's a like, a, again, a stone carry is a completely different animal. And there's a lot of big, big guys that that can't carry the Husafel. And uh, it, it's it's an extremely well. It's the ultimate. It's the ultimate carrying stone for sure. Sure. Yeah. That this this conversation actually. I, I'm in the squirrel mode of the season for stone lifting, where our <laughs> collecting and stashing. Yeah. Wherever you our can, our yeah. Alberta winter is coming on. You know, realistically, the, the forecast for ten days looks good, but by the end of October, we're yeah. lucky if we don't have snow here. I'm not sure what it's quite like for you out east, but so I'm I've been in overtime finding stones like because i don't want to pull too much away from our our stones uh where we keep at our sites but there is one that we call the coal miners carry and that's one i, I posted and it's 355 pounds you and i have discussed this one it's very similar in height pick for the husafel and 
you know, I thought just training with my um, my loadable Husafel would be a, a really good option for all winter, but that 355 pound stone is significantly harder to pick than the actual loadable Husafel. So I may have to scroll that one away in my garage for the winter just to make it a more difficult pick and carry. Because if I if the actual Husafel tends to be more like my loadable Husafel, well, then I'm in a much better place than the opposite. So I think if I train a little bit harder, then that way we can work on picks and yeah. might be a good way to have that that little guy tucked away in the garage for the winter. It's definitely better to be over-prepared, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that um, you want to make sure that you're as strong as you possibly can be. And like I don't, I'm lucky enough that I have stones inside of the gym. I can lift that them all winter long at any time, and I can even do carries if I choose to. So I'm very fortunate in that way. Um, I think that as long as you're training hard and as long as you're training consistent, that will give you enough exposure to figure things out and what works best for you. And that does take a lot, I think, a long time. Um, and I, I think with the carry part of it, I've always been, I've always been pretty good at that. Um, I tend to be good at the events where, um, grit matter. That yeah. was definitely my strong suit for sure. And, um, you know, so like farmer's walks, um, long farmer's walks and, and stuff like that. Um, the stone that you have, I think it's a fantastic shape and it looks very similar to the Husafel. And and the Husafel is very, very flat. So it, it feels actually quite good on the chest. And it also is carried just because of its shape. It's it's not typically as tall top to bottom as a loadable Husafel stone. So it, it doesn't ever really get in the way of your legs, which is a huge problem with a loadable Husafel. And so yes, if you have a natural stone and there's a very concentrated surface area that's pressing against your torso, that's going to knock the wind out of you much, much quicker than the Husafel, the real stone. Yeah. Okay, so then that's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get that one. <laughs> that's Dave good. the stone squirrel. I am a stone <laughs> That's pretty accurate. It's ridiculous, but it's fun. It's half it's half the fun for me with all this stuff from the Edmonton Stones of Strength because we just have so like it's honestly two minute drive from our house. As we've talked about before in this, I just there's tons of stones everywhere, and it's just too much fun to be digging them up and finding because a strength puzzle. Everyone is different, and it's so fun to find these these new ones. And I don't know, it's just it's so much of the fun for me. Yeah, I agree. It's uh again it's it's my favorite thing that i've ever done and uh i just think it's amazing to to be able to fly to these foreign countries and feel like you're on this real life adventure and yeah. a treasure hunt for these stones and you've never seen them before and 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 even finding the stone and immersing yourself into their culture driving on the wrong side of the road like i said it's all of those things and all the people that you meet and uh you know, like some of my best experiences have been meeting complete strangers whom I will never meet again um, and having this um, intimate uh, and brief connection and uh, finding these stones and reading these stones and, and solving this strength puzzle, as you say, and um, and then conquering that stone and, and putting your name on that same stone that so many men have lifted you know for hundreds of years in some cases before you the entire thing it's uh it, it's in it's just magical yeah and you, so you've talked about how you would never go back to the husafel because nothing would ever top that initial feeling you had with your first successful lift there 
what uh, what brought you back to Scotland for your second trip? So there were, uh, I, I lifted in the first trip more of the, I guess you would call them more well-known stones. Yeah. And uh, so the second trip was to lift some of the not as popular stones, but um, the trip was just as magical nonetheless. Um, it was, it, I, I did go back to the Dinny stones, um, but I, not to lift them, just to just just to be there. And Barbara hadn't been with me on the first trip, and uh, so it was a great way for her to see the stones and for us to experience the place and you know uh, walk across the bridge. And it's a beautiful place. Mm. And uh, but yeah, I have no intentions on ever attempting the Husafell again. Um, again, I just I, I'm so happy with that singular experience I, I i don't want to blemish it in any kind of way um and it's it's that stone for me that is uh, i i can't really explain to you why it's it's um so special to me uh, it's um because i don't know if i can actually articulate why i, I don't even know if i know why um yeah yeah, yeah. i think some yeah, of the magic so, that comes around the uncertainty right so for example you did the dinny stones without direct specific training for the Dinny Stones, but even with the direct specific training for the Husafel, there was still a lot of uncertainty and doubt in your mind as to whether or not you would get it up, even after trying to lift it a couple of times, that doubt was still there. So yeah. I think that uh, why it was such a magical moment that doesn't warrant trying to be recreated. So Yeah, I, I think that uh because the I mean the Dinny Stones are as old as the hills as well. Um yeah. So there, there's a tremendous amount of tradition there as well. Uh, but again, for some reason, that I was just drawn to the Husafel stone, and mm. it was, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I have attempted a lot of stones in 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 these in these trips that I wasn't sure if I was going going to be able to lift them because of the circumstances, because of the weather, especially. Um, some of these stones, when they're wet, like uh, I had a very difficult time with the uh, Glen Roy stones in, in my first trip because they were soaking wet. And they are not extremely heavy stones, but, um, you know, they were very difficult. Even something uh, very light like the Newtonmore stone, um, it, it was it was muddy. Um, it was covered in mud. That stone was unbelievably hard. It weighs hundred kilograms. It's two hundred two twenty two, I believe, is the exact weight. Yeah. Um, that was an unbelievably slippery stone, and it's two twenty two. I mean, so there's just anything that can happen on these trips, and uh, so I, I have encountered doubt on every single trip and multiple times in a trip. Um, but again, for some reason, the Husafel is just different for me. Um, I just, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. And I trained extremely hard for it. And like you said, I did train specifically for it. Um, unlike the Denny Stones. And uh, I just didn't know. And um, I, I almost can't believe that I did it um, in, in some way. It almost seems as though it was this out-of-body experience that it wasn't me that did it somehow, and I I don't know how else I could possibly describe it, um, because again I I don't I don't know if I necessarily fully fully understand it myself. It's uh, it it was, it felt transcending to me is what it felt like. I felt like it changed me as a person somehow, and that um, I was a different person when I came back home. 
Oh, that's that's cool. It was so powerful for you. Um, yeah. You you had said said something a couple minutes ago, and I had to write it down because I kind of had a, a sea change in my mind throughout our Scotland trip without realizing it. And I'll circle back to your point here, and I'm wondering if it has any pertinence to you. When we first planned on going to Scotland, and I was you know training for it and and telling people about it, trying to justify why I was going, is I thought originally it would be cool to be able to test myself against these these men, these warriors of the past. But I didn't really think, I didn't even know that I'd had a perspective change until you said something a few minutes ago. And I realized on that trip, I, it wasn't about me testing myself against these men of the past. It was about being a part of the tradition, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and I didn't even, until you said something, I didn't even realize my brain had switched gears with that, where it's about just being a part of it. But I'm wondering maybe maybe part of the reason why the Husafel was so particularly special for you is that because that was truly maybe towards more of a test for yourself. Of course, you want to be a part of the tradition, but that was like the highest level of test. So not only did you become a part of the history and the tradition of it, but it was the highest level of testing yourself for it. And you proved something to yourself in doing so. Yeah, I think that that is very insightful. I think that, uh, I think, I think that it is some of that certainly because, um, you know, I, I don't know how I would have felt if I had failed at lifting some of the stones that I've attempted because, again, I've been lucky enough to – I haven't failed one yet. Um, I've There have been a couple of stones that I have had to attempt, uh, geez, I think five or six times a couple of stones took me five or six attempts. And when you're attempting so many stones on a, on a tour – you you can't really afford to do that. Um, now that's only happened a couple of times, but um, I, I think that it doesn't matter how strong you are. There's a stone out there that's big enough that you're not going to be able to lift it. Yeah, and uh, I think that I think that the Husafel. I think that it was the greatest challenge and and the greatest challenge that I've ever faced. And uh, I just think I had. Uh, more doubt in that than than anything I've ever done, and I just really didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. And simultaneously believed in myself, and it was this curious combination of things. And again, um, if you can read it, that's what Bill Crawford talks about, and those words resonated with me so much because he had obviously experienced the same thing that I had, and. Um, Again, it was just a magical moment, and uh, I will, I will remember it for, for the rest of my days. You know, I, I plan on actually, I, I wore a Jones Gym T-shirt when I did it, and uh, I, I took the shirt off, and I didn't wear it for the rest of the trip. So I've worn that shirt only to do the Husafel, and I am going to be buried in that shirt. That's my plan. Awesome. That is really cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't- of that is we yeah. wore Emerson Stones of Strength shirt all throughout Scotland, but I don't family kilt. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. have a couple of different versions of that shirt. I don't know which one we wore to Scotland. Now, I know I've got. I wasn't yeah, thinking yeah, ahead like yeah. you were. Mine's got a couple <laughs> holes in it. So, that, I think just you know, to one final point on the whole historical stone lifting tour aspect of things, and David, you kind of summarize it. And just to say, you know, when you're going and lifting these stones, you're not. It's not you competing or comparing yourselves to the lifters of the past it's, it's you becoming one of them right it's you becoming yeah. one of the lifters of that stone and that's why 
it's very important that as you go out and you you experience a stone tour and lift these stones that you treat them with as much respect oh, as possible so that other people in the future hopefully hundreds if not thousands of years in the future can have that same experience so i absolutely agree and and uh I hope that the Husafella is around for a long time. I hope that people continue to to have the opportunity to test themselves, test their metal on that stone because it's such a it's such a perfect test. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a a sheep's pen. You know, it's a yeah. it's a stone that has been wrestled down from the mountains to be used as a gate. You know, it's a it's just a ridiculous story. It's fantastic yeah, it's, and it's charming. It's, it's and it's, a story that has become a legend. Yeah. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of uh, it, it, it's the same thing as uh, June Richards, the the caretaker of the Inverstone. And uh, so, like, I mean, the fact that some of the strongest men in the world travel to Scotland, to her house, to her garden, to attempt to lift the Inverstone. Um, there's something that's absolutely charming about that entire thing. I, I just love the idea of it, that these guys in kilts are knocking on her door and asking permission to lift a rock that's in her garden, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. It's, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah, it, it's it's absurd, the entire thing, right? And uh, and they are just rocks, um, you know, but it, it's, it's just like they say in Stoneland. They're just rocks to anybody passing by. Uh, but yeah. it's the people and the Those tradition people. and the history and, and everything that goes with it that, that uh, you know, creates so much more meaning than it just being a simple stone. And yeah. uh, I just think it's I think it's lovely that they uh, they honored June in the way that they did. And, uh, you know, after you lift the stone, like I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, be invited into her home with Martin and, and sign the book. And uh, she offered me a cup of tea wow. and. It's just fantastic. Um, yeah. And I is. think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's just something about that that is just, it's just great. And and I think that the absurdity of stone lifting is, is actually part of the charm. Um, yeah. So when we were just in Sweden, um, we went to a, we went to a stone and uh, it was fantastic that the lady there, so it was a husband and wife and, and a son. and the son could speak English, but the husband and wife, the mom and dad, um, they they couldn't. So the uh, the the son he he was translating for us, and uh, his mom, the wife, had said to us, uh, "Don't you have rocks in Canada?" And <laughs> it's it's true. It's a fantastic line. It's hilarious, but it's true because why would somebody travel from Canada in this example to to Sweden to lift rocks? And why lift, why specifically to lift a rock that's in her backyard? What makes that one so special, right? Well, it's the yeah. people that make those stones special. And it's the history and the tradition and the story and the, and the continuity of that stone. It has its own story. And if you are lucky enough to put your hands on that particular stone, whether you lift it or not, you become part of that stone's history. Absolutely. Oh, that's beautifully put. Yeah. I, I think before we uh, close out for the episode, I mean, I became aware not of you, but maybe of your methods before we even interacted uh, when I was training some, with David uh, for Alberta Strongest Viking. And at that time, you were coaching him. And um, yeah. 
you know, I know like your approach to the way that you're coaching, very analytical, very hands-on. You're having him record and document all of his lists that you could review and help him improve. Um, do you want to maybe let everybody know a bit about, um, you know, what, what you do as a coach in your gym? And Yeah. So uh, I don't train very many people at the gym and um, I, I do that on purpose. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to make a living in my hometown. And that's, that's really all I'm looking to do. Um, yeah. especially where, where I live, there's a lot of guys that need to travel out of the province actually to, uh, to Alberta yeah. 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 to be able to work and to be able to make a living. And so yeah. I feel very fortunate to be able to make a living in my own hometown. I, I love it here. I was born and raised here and I have no plans on going anywhere. And, uh, so I, I train enough people to pay the bills and, um, you know, and, and that's it. Um, as far as training Dave goes, like, uh, that, that was fantastic for me because I've had numerous coaches through the years. Um, actually I'll name them because they were all great guys. Mike Westerling was my first coach specifically for strongman. And, uh, Mike actually helped Brian Shaw prepare for, uh, the world's strongest man just a few years ago. Mike's a fantastic coach and a fantastic guy. And uh, my second coach was Mike Mistel, and he was a pro strongman as a 231. Again, fantastic guy, um, very analytical, um, very methodical, um, just a fantastic guy to work with. And my most recent coach was Andrew Clayton. And Andrew, same thing, um, just brilliant. Um, he, he just, I think, sees more than other people. I think that he and, and he's a multi, multiple time world champion as a as a 105 uh, strongman. Um, so he's yeah he's as good as anybody, but a fantastic coach, fantastic human being, um, and I, I couldn't be more lucky with all three coaches that I've had, and I've tried to learn as much as I possibly can from those guys. And uh, so I think that with time you you that's exactly how it happens you 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 draw from whoever you can and wherever you can and i've been very fortunate to expedite that process by having such great coaches and um so for me to be able to to uh to do programming for you dave like for this for a strongman competition was fantastic because uh, I had never prepared. Well, I, I guess I had prepared a couple of people uh, for strong strongman competitions before, but um, but not like this, and not remotely. And uh, and that's how I work with all of my coaches. And so it was just a role reversal that was a fantastic experience and a bunch of fun. And um, it's it's great stuff. I, I do think that if if somebody can afford it that hiring a knowledgeable coach really does expedite the entire process. Um, even if it's somebody that is going to collaborate, collaborate with you uh, mm -hmm. and not necessarily dictate to you what you need to do. Uh, two heads are better than one and uh, a pair of educated eyes watching your lips. Um, it's uh, it expedites the entire thing. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, that, that was a fun process. And that was for the third strongest Viking competition and I got the title back by quite a big margin which was yeah. really satisfying but it was fun talking to you when you we were I was telling you the events and you said you know some of them were very unique events like the yeah. press up 
the log, a 200, then it'd be an 180 pound, just log, it's chunk, wow. of, yeah. chunk of tree, no <laughs> handle, nothing. And so it was fun us just kind of BSing back and forth on like, hey, is this going to work and feeling out the process. So yeah, it was really, really, it was really fun. And I, you know, came out of that one of the strongest I've ever been in my life. Like I think if anything, I've gotten weaker over the summer, <laughs> starting the summer where I was prepped for that competition. So yeah, it was a pleasure, man. And, and lots of fun. Yeah, that that competition that Troy puts on is a fantastic competition. It's a great idea. It, it's what he's doing is paying homage to the, you know the original strongman idea is what it is. You know that's what strongman you know was all about. And uh, like to do a, a log clean and press with no handles, it's that's just a tremendous event. And um, <laughs> yeah, and you outside know. too, right? Because there's. <laughs> That's so yeah. much different. If anyone hasn't pressed outside, it is absolutely 100% different than pressing under a ceiling, which sounds dumb until you do it, but it is a drastic difference. Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, I think that, you know, that experience was, you know, we, we learned together as we went along um, right. because, you know, you don't have all the answers and you need to stay open minded. And, and sometimes things look great on paper or an idea you think is just brilliant. And then you try it and it's not practical whatsoever. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And uh, I think that especially with new events like that, if you've never done them, I've never done a log clean and press with no handles. And so you, of course, would think that it's going to be similar to a regular log with handles, but it's a different animal. And, uh, so it was a lot of fun to experiment and and figure out what you know to really dial things in and figure out what works and what doesn't and uh it's the scientific method you know but but with a with a real person doing a real thing in real life it's great yeah we got to see some people do that kind of experimentation with their approach to doing the log and a couple of the other events at the event which is also kind of fun to see too some of the oddball ways oh, yeah. Under yeah. lifting a log with no handles and doing a hundred pound stone throw and things like that. It was yeah. good. One guy who's, he even said, well, I'm going to do it six to eight times. He was pretty sure on himself. And I think he got one. Yeah. <laughs> there was uh, yeah. one, one time at the, uh, I, I love this story because it's uh, self-deprecating humor. Um, so I, I was notoriously bad at overhead pressing in general. I seem to be for whatever reason, very good with the circus dumbbell, but with the log and, and axle, you know, I was okay, but I was always lagging behind, especially, you know, with against my competition in, in the 90 kilogram class. And so at the Worlds one year um, at OSG, they had a medley and they had a, a keg, a circus dumbbell, an axle, and a log. And I knew because of the weights, I wasn't going to have a chance at the axle or the log, but I would have a chance at the circus dumbbell and the keg. And the keg was 240. Boy, and yeah and so with, with with a keg overhead press it's you know almost really just the clean if you can clean it you're going to be able to press it and uh i was really struggling with it and uh so my coach mike mistel came up with this idea it was not mine um and we came up with an alternative technique which is completely ridiculous and i'll tell you what it was so you would start with the keg standing upright in front of you and you would bear hug it just like you're doing a Husafel pick. Yeah. And you would lap it and you would put your legs together to create a shelf. And you would then shoulder the keg from that position 
Okay, so you would have it on one shoulder, and you would then let go with one hand, just like you would to sh to shoulder the keg. But then you would work the keg to the back of your neck, okay, okay. across your shoulder. Okay. <laughs> so you have to you have to shimmy it into place. You then have to find a hand position and the handle. And the way that it would work is that the hand that was in the handhold you couldn't put your thumb in the handhold because you would just break your thumb. So you had to press it thumbless. Or sorry, not, not the handle side, the, the, uh, the non-handle side, because there, there is no place for the thumb. Yeah. And so it was, it was completely ridiculous. I was doing uh, keg cleans with 240 pounds that would take 30 seconds to get into position before you could press them. And, uh, and uh, I ended up, uh, again, completely ridiculous. When I was warming up down there, you should have seen the looks that I was getting by the fellow competitors because nobody had ever seen anybody attempt to clean a, a keg like that because you never would uh, unless you absolutely had to because that was the only way that you'd be able to press the thing. Yeah. And so they were using um, the Mike Bartos uh, Power Center kegs, which are loadable, plate loadable, and all of the weight, the they use just regular weight plates. They're all centered in the keg. So it's unlike a traditional keg, which is what I have at the gym, where you have weight through, you know, like equally balanced throughout the implement. And so what happened is when I tried to clean the keg, it was only heavy in the middle. And I completely just threw it over my shoulder and 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 ended up not being able to press it. So it was a terrible event for me. But uh I did press my 240 pound keg numerous times in the gym using that ridiculous technique. And it just reminds me of it because it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is funny. Oh man. Well, yeah. To Keith, what's uh, coming up next? When's the next stone tour? Where are you going to? Cause yeah, I, I think that, um, so I think I will probably go to Ireland next. Yeah. Um, I'm getting old and, uh, the stones there are very, very heavy. And I yeah. think that the longer I wait to go there, the more difficult they will be. I found a, a, a huge difference in my recovery from Sweden versus um, only a, a year prior to that, 11 months prior to that, my trip to Scotland. So the, the clock is ticking. I feel like I have to get those stones done if I'm going to, if I'm going to be able to get them done. Uh, yeah. So I'd like to go to Ireland next, and I I think that I would like to go back to Iceland as well, um, probably after, because there are a lot of newly rediscovered stones since I was there in 2019. I kind of just missed them, and uh, there are certainly enough stones to make a second trip, and the stones there are extremely heavy as well. So I think probably in that order. The, the thing about Sweden is Sweden has so many stones that I think a, a guy could go back there numerous times if he wanted to. Uh, unfortunately, um, I've lifted just about all of the stones in Scotland. And so I, I probably am not going to go back other than maybe for pleasure because the country is beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see who knows what's going to happen, of course. But I would say that that is my plan. I, and I think that there are enough stones. If if David keeps doing what he's doing, there might be enough stones for a second trip to Ireland in a year's time. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Keith. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you, guys. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be so kind as to leave the show a review and then follow us over on Instagram at stonesofstrength underscore podcast. Oh, 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 oh